Well, praise the Lord for God-centered, Christ-exalting music. Praise the Lord. Isaiah 6. If you make your way to Isaiah 6, would like to read down through verse 7 this morning. Last week, we started our series on the holiness of God, or on the King of Glory. That's His name. And we were able to talk about how we should exalt the King of Glory for His righteousness. Today, we will see the only response when the holy comes in contact with the unholy. So the Bible says in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah... Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, burning ones, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew or hovered. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Wow, what a text of Scripture. Here's what we know. There is a word to describe our God in all of His holiness And it would be the word incomprehensible. He is. God is incomprehensible. Yet, we know from Scripture that He is knowable. He is absolute. And yet, our God is personal. In many ways, the best way or the most vital element to explain theology properly would just be to say it's a mystery. It really is. To explain theology accurately, we would all have to say in some ways, uh, to describe our God and His dealings with mankind, we would say it is certainly a mystery. We cannot fully comprehend revealed truth. Everything must be treated with God as center and our God as the starting point. Under Him, all things are subsumed and to Him are all things traced back It's God and God alone whose glory in creation, in redemption, in nature, in grace, in this world and through the church. It is that part of the glory of God which must be meditated upon and described by everything God ever made. And everything that exists. It's the knowledge of God alone which all these things must display and show forth. A.W. Tozer struggled with this question. What is God like? Could you answer that? Could we give a, even a workable 
definition to that kind of statement back to us or that kind of question from us, what is God like? And Tozer says, in himself, what is God like in himself? To this question, there's no answer. If we mean by that, what has God disclosed to us about himself? Then there's reason to say that we can comprehend that uh, and that the answer to me and you would be full and satisfying. Although in his essence, our God is absolutely incomprehensible. But yet he's condescended in love. And he's declared certain parts by revelation and by truth. And ultimately, in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has done those things to let us know certain truths about himself. And what do we call these truths? Attributes of God. And there's only one attribute in all the Word of God that's trebled. And it's the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know from the book of Revelation that this is sung in antiphonal ways before the throne of God day and night. Our God is holy. Now, what this text teaches us in Isaiah 6 is that we bring the incomprehensible, which is our God, that's going to touch the unholy, and what's going to be the response of the unholy one. We see in this passage the transcendent God meeting eminence. So Isaiah 6 is so unique in what it reveals about God. And the most amazing thing that it reveals is that when you turn to John chapter 12, you will learn that the one seated upon the throne was none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to see that next week, but not this week. But that's the most amazing thing. This I know, only heaven can fully expound Isaiah 6 for us. Now, I, I made a feeble attempt last week to do verses 1 through 4. And I will say that it's a feeble attempt because I don't think, I actually believe when it comes to Isaiah 6, you can labor and you can go through the text, but in the final analysis, only heaven will truly be able to expound to us what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. Today... We move from the revelation of the thrice holy God to what happens when a human being comes into contact with the holiness of God. Folks, we desperately need this principle back in our churches today. It would be an afterthought to say that we need it in our world, but I would tell you that we need it in this church today. We desperately need to recapture the principle that God is holy. What happens when the holiness of God meets that which is unholy. Now I would venture to say to you, if you've truly encountered God, if you've had a God encounter moment, if the fingerprints of Isaiah 6 are not all over your life, then you've not encountered the God of the Bible. If in some way you don't go away and come away from that God encounter with some of the aspects of Isaiah 6 in your life, then you've not encountered the living and true God. You cannot come in contact with this holy God and encounter Him without understanding your own condition before Him. It's impossible. You can't do it. So, here's the one point for this morning. Aren't you glad that the preacher has one point? Last week it was to exalt in the righteousness of the King of Glory or the holiness of the King of Glory. Today I want you to acknowledge human sin and receive divine forgiveness from the King of Glory. I learned quickly as I was preparing this week that I could adequately, well, the best of my ability, 
cover the human condition before the holiness of God. But as I began to think about the length of that sermon, I felt sorry for you. Because I knew if I added in divine forgiveness, we'd be here till 1 o'clock. So we're going to do this in four parts. And next week, we've got the pleasure of looking in to divine forgiveness from the King of Glory. Now look, I don't hesitate to tell you I am so thankful for verses 6 and 7. Aren't you? Aren't you so thankful for the blood of the Lamb that atones for your sin? Don't we love the but God phrases? When you read through Romans 3, it doesn't look good. Period. Uh, no one seeks after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Your mouth is an open sepulcher. But God. Aren't you thankful for that coordinating conjunction? That God did something about your sinful condition. However, we're not going to get to verse 6 and 7 today. Just put your focus on verse 5. Here is Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, verse 5 is a despairing verse, is it not? Again, we thank God for the but God parts. But back in verse 4, we learned that smoke and fire are visual reminders of the terror of Yahweh God. Much like Mount Sinai when God comes down in all of His glory and you're not even allowed to touch the hem of the mountain. If you did, then you died. So here we, we've got a visual proclamation of the fact that the holy God of the universe has come down and He's in contact with unholy subjects. And in that case, you see fire and smoke at times, it's actually mixed with one other incredible natural catastrophe, and that's called an earthquake. If you look through the Bible, smoke and fire and earthquake, that's what takes place when there's a confrontation of the holy with the, with the sinful. What did Isaiah say? Uh, I thought as I was sitting in my office chair preparing this sermon, I wonder what the modern evangelical would have said. I mean, we're so, we're so self centered in our world today and, and we're so far removed from the holiness of God and the fear of God and who God is, I'm not sure how we would respond. Well, I'm telling you now, if you stood before him, you'd respond just like Isaiah. You would. But, but when I think about how we would think about our response uh, that we might make before the Lord, we have to wonder about it. We might say, well, I'm a special kind of man or woman to be in the presence of God. I'm special. No, I don't think that's what you're going to think at all. And I want to remind you that Isaiah was probably in the upper echelon of people during his day. No question about it. He was an upright guy. Uh, more so than we are, probably. And you think about that. But in the presence of a holy God, he said, woe is me. Now, I want to remind you that chapter 5 is full of woes. Just look over to the left side of your page. If, if your Bible's like mine and Isaiah 6 is on the right side, you may have to flip over. But just look over. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And we say, give it to them, God. Right? I mean, it sounds good when the woe is falling on someone else. As a matter of fact, that terminology, woe, is given by a prophet from God to a particular group and or people. So just remember, as you go through the Scripture and you see the woe parts of Scripture, usually they're given to an appropriate, an appropriate audience who deserves the doom and woe from God. For instance, uh, the writers of the Bible and prophets would say, Woe to the Philistines, right? Give it to them, God! That's what the Israelites would say. Woe to the Babylonians. God, give it to them. So it is the prophetic world that the prophet is using. The word is out by prophetic voice to the world and or the inhabitants because of their sin against God. Woe to you for these, this, that, and the other. You can read that in chapter 5. But here, Isaiah does something that is absolutely unbelievable. He actually pronounces an oracle of woe upon himself. He gives this oracle to himself. There's, there's not a more vivid word to express despair than this one. At this point, the ESV says, I am lost. The New American Standard, the NAS, says, I am ruined. Actually, in Hebrew, there are two words that come together at this point. One is to be silent before God, and the other is to be destroyed. So he could have been saying, woe is me, I have been silenced. Or he could have been saying, woe is me, I have been cut off by death, and I am absolutely doomed. In our vernacular, we would say, I'm history. That'd be a good English translation. I'm actually, I'm history. Whatever the root of the word, here's what it means. I'm unraveled before this king. I'm destroyed. I'm silenced. What can I say in my condition before this God? In the last day, the Bible says every mouth will be stopped in his presence. You ever read that? In the presence of the king of glory, the first thing out of Isaiah's mouth is a declaration of self-condemnation. When he's in the presence of the thrice holy God who is absolutely incomprehensible, who dwells in unapproachable light, who has never been visibly seen by a man, period, in all of his essence. When Isaiah sees the Lord, uh, gets a glimpse and a vision of him sitting upon his throne in whatever anthropomorphic terms that is. What does that mean? A man-centered or man terms to help us understand and grasp God. When Isaiah sees Actually, John 12, Jesus in all of His glory, the first thing that comes out of His mouth is a declaration of self-condemnation. He condemns Himself before this great and awesome God upon His throne. But He's not only in the presence of God, He's also in the presence of God as He's being praised by the holy angels. What should we say about that? Do you think that Isaiah would have had a desire to enter in to singing when he saw the king on his throne. It doesn't take much to strike a note for me to sing. Period. I just like to sing. You know, if there's a song in your heart, let her out. I used to love Lamont Rich. 
that would sing at Cropwell Baptist Church. He was in his 70s, and he'd grab that microphone. He'd say, let her rip. That's what he'd do. And they'd play the music in the back, and he'd just sing to the glory of the Lord. Used to love to hear him say that. But don't you think that Isaiah was compelled? I'm telling you, he had to be compelled to join the angels in that seraphic antiphony to say, holy, holy, holy. Yet I've got news for you, he couldn't do it. Why? Because Isaiah was aware of his own sinfulness. Now some surmise that lips here, uh, I dwell among a people, or my lips are unclean. They think more about the fact that he's going to actually go out and give a message for God and proclaim it. And he's going to be a prophet and he's going to use his lips to do it. And thus he needed to be purged. Well, I, that certainly could be the case. But I think in the context of this, Here's a man of unclean lips. What about this expression? Well, we would say, today I have an unclean heart. Or I have a corrupt mind. Or my affections are skewed. I have polluted affections. Isaiah mentions here his lips. The very thing that he would use in the presence of the king to say holy, holy, holy. He realizes that they are corrupt and unclean. And that his affections and his mind and his heart... All that coming together with saying, I have unclean lips. There's a good reason for this. I think in the midst of the angels singing, holy, 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 Isaiah is painfully aware. He is awfully aware of his own sinfulness before God. Again, the lips that should be praising in the presence of God are seen to be polluted. The angels worship with what kind of lips? Pure lips. But Isaiah was awestruck with the sense of unworthiness. Before the God that he was standing because of his own sin. He's keenly aware of his own condemnation. Sees the dirtiness of his heart and life. Did not Jesus, the King of glory, remind us of this in the Gospels by saying this. What goes into the mouth defiles a person. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Verse 19 of Matthew 15 says this, For out of the heart flow evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These, Jesus said, the King of glory, is what defiles a person. Isaiah was painfully aware that his mouth had not been what was pouring out praise to God, but was a channel for flowing out the corruptness of his own heart. Before God, and then Isaiah adds, I dwell in the midst of unclean lips, a people of unclean lips. Now, why did Isaiah make this distinction? Is he standing in the palace, perhaps, or in the temple, perhaps? The Hebrew word could be either one. He's by himself. We would assume he's in a solitary place, but yet he addresses those who are from without. And I think he's not only painfully aware of the pollution within, but I think he's also aware of the pollution without. He comes from a corrupt people. He comes from a corrupt race. Do we bear any markings of that? We certainly do. He's surrounded by people of corrupt lips. He's surrounded by people who are far from God, who are un holy. Is this not the reality that we live in? Do you ever as a believer feel the effects of living among people of unclean lips? 
I guess y'all are super spiritual, right? And you're not affected by the world around you, right? I can just tell how super spiritual you are at FBCO, that you're not bothered at all by what goes on around you. How often do we hear those blasphemies, those perversions, the cursings, the misuse of the King of Glory's name? We hear this all the time in every part of our daily existence. All you have to do is flip on the TV. And that's all we see. It's almost like we can feel the condemnation because of the blasphemy against God in the world that we live. We ought to feel the sense of, no, the King of glory deserves all praise. He doesn't deserve to be blasphemed. We, ought, we feel that. There's a pollution from within, a pollution from without, and we obviously pick up on it, don't we? That's why it's so important to be in the world, but not of it. To have contact without contamination. To be in contact with the world, but not in isolation. To be the salt and light that God has called us to be. And then he tells us why. For, it's very important here in the text. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For, that connects it to something. In other words, his condition, his self-condemnation, his understanding of his condition and his people is due to the fact that his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Actually, the Hebrew text reads this way. For the King, Yahweh of hosts, I have my eyes seen. Where is the emphasis? The emphasis is not on your eyes. It's upon the king that you saw. That's why the Hebrew reads this way. The king is first. The king, my eyes. So everything is coming out of it. Do you remember the contrast? A king died. Remember, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The interesting thing is that the real king of glory is alive. Seated on his throne. And when you see him, the very first thing that comes to your mind and understanding is your self-condemnation and unholiness before this holy God who is on his throne. Now the interesting thing is that the seraphim have the ability to cover their eyes as they behold the blazing holiness of God. They've got a built-in protection. Is that true for Isaiah? Can you imagine what happened to him when he had nothing to cover his eyes and the splendor and majesty of God and I've seen the king and I am ruined so verse 5 presents Isaiah with a reality that few people in scripture have ever experienced can you think of anyone in scripture that experienced something even remotely close to what happened here well Job experienced it did he not If you read, uh, Job can be broken down this way. Prologue, uh, dialogue, and epilogue. And so in the beginning, in the prologue, we know what kind of man Job was. One of the most righteous on the face of the earth, if not the most righteous, the scripture says. And yet, the enemy, much like with Peter, uh, wants to sift him. And God puts him up and says, hey, here's a righteous man. Have you considered my servant? And you know the story of what goes on in Job's life. And if you read through the book of Job... Uh, Job's attitude begins to change as the scripture unfolds to us. But at first, he's trying to prove to his friends that he's really a man of integrity. That he's not 
the product of his own sinful life, meaning that his own sin has brought this judgment upon his own life, and he's, he's trying to justify himself. Yet, just about as fast as he, the words leave his mouth, he realizes that God is God. So Job, his attitude changes. And when you get down to chapter 38, Job stops talking and God starts talking. And when that happens, it's time to be quiet. And at the very beginning, you know that? When, when God says to Job, now where were you when I put the mountains where they are? That's kind of like, okay, you're going to start complaining to me about your situation. I'm God and you're not. And just read through that sometime in your quiet time. But at the beginning of chapter 40, the Lord says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Folks, you better let that sink into your mind and heart. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. That's what God said. Here's what Job said. Behold, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. Folks, that's what all of us have to do before a holy God. Just put your hand over your mouth and say, woe is me. And Job says this, I have heard about you, and now I have seen you. And what was that response? Just the hand over the mouth. This is the holy coming in contact with the unholy. After Habakkuk hears a report from the Lord, gets a glimpse of his glory, here's what he says. I hear you and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Folks, that's what happens when the holy and the unholy comes in contact together. Even... The holy God, veiled incarnate for us, that's called Christmas. Even in Jesus coming down to this earth and us beholding all of His glory, there's still something, as stated by a German theologian, called the Mysterium Tremendum. Now, you learn how to pronounce that, I'll give you 25 cents. And you can buy a cup of coffee at McDonald's. What that means is the awful mystery of God. The terrible mysterium tremendum. The terrible mystery of God. Folks, God is still a mystery. And you better not forget this. Even when we consider that the Son of God has brought and, and manifested Him in all of His glory, coming down from heaven, there's still something about Him that is awful. It is a mystery. In Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter goes out fishing. And they fished all night long and they've caught... By the way, I don't do that much. No, I'm just kidding. But here's the deal. He went fishing all night, fished where he was supposed to fish, caught nothing. And Jesus says to the disciples on the seashore and to Peter, I want you to thrust your boat back out in the water, and I want you to throw your net on the other side. And you know Peter, right? Quick to speak, slow to think. You can tell from the scripture that he's not all in. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And you know the story. The fish fill the net. I mean, that's one of the stories I want to see reenacted in glory. If the Lord would just let us see that. The astonishment and the amount of fish in that net, so large they could barely even pull it in. And the fish fill the net, and Simon Peter doesn't attempt to sign Jesus up for a fishing contract. 
Some of you guys that try to fish and make all this money, don't you wish you had the king of glory in your boat? Just throw your line right there. You'll catch one every single time. You might have 25 on one hook, biting each other. Right? Throw your net on the other side. What is amazing to me is not Peter saying, Oh God, you're great. Keep fishing with me. I'm going to sign you up to a bath contract. No, the thing is how he responds. He says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, King of glory. Right? That's his response. So what we see in Isaiah 6-5 is the plain reality of what happens when God ushers into his presence an unholy man. We see that response of that man. The unholy man condemns himself before this thrice holy God. He's filled with a sense of unworthiness and his depth of his sin. And the only thing that is just for this God to do who is seated on the throne is to ruin anything that comes into his presence. Folks, you may not like that, but that is the only just thing a holy God can do to anything unholy in his presence. That would be the just thing for God to do. Anything in his holy presence is absolutely condemned. Have you ever had this sense of awe before God? When you do... All of your bartering before him is stripped away. All of the, oh Lord, I got 25 Sunday school pins that hang to the ground. I've been faithful in Sunday school and I've been to church and I've tithed and, and I've done this and I've done that and I've done this. Folks, when you see yourself the way God sees you, when you're brought into the presence of a holy God, then the only viable response is I self-condemn myself. I am absolutely unworthy. No one will ever say before God, you know, Lord, that person who lived next to me, they were far worse than I was. As a matter of fact, that Baptist that sat beside me at First Baptist Church, I know what kind of life they lived. Folks, I'm telling you, you'll never say that before the king. That's not going to be what you say. I promise you. Because that's not what Isaiah said. In Psalm 51, David said, Lord, you are justified when you speak. And whatever comes out of his mouth is always justified. God, you are justified, David says, when you speak. Isaiah said, I am ruined. In other words, I am disintegrating before you. Now I want to give you three, three application points from that. Three application points today. Just from verse 5. Let Maybe, maybe, this, maybe Isaiah 6-5 needs to be the heartbeat of our church family before God. And maybe we should title it, We Are the Church of Pathetic Losers. Because that's the way you feel when you're before this God. And, and there's nothing wrong with feeling that in the presence of holiness. Okay? Nothing wrong with feeling the sense of self-condemnation when you are before holiness. Here's the first thing. In order for us to know ourselves, we must know the God to whom we must give an account. Folks, I don't care what an atheist says. They condemn themselves by their own words. Why are they trying to prove that a God doesn't exist who they say doesn't exist? Why does it even matter? Why are you going to spend all that time? Well, there's a moral code inside of that man's heart and mind that proves to him in his heart and mind that God Almighty does exist. So to the Lord God, there is no such thing as an atheist. In God's particular position, they don't exist. 
Because they're going to give an account before the great I am. Everybody that's ever been born is going to give an account. So if you have an elevated view of yourself, then you know nothing of what's taught in the Bible regarding Isaiah 6. If we have an elevated understanding, our view of ourselves, then if we have a a self-righteous understanding, then you have no clue concerning the God of the Bible. Those who think that their own merit before God will bring them into heaven or that would stop and think for a moment, there's no way in my goodness that you could ever send me to hell. Folks, don't fool yourself. This God spoken of in Isaiah chapter 6 is absolutely holy and cannot look upon sin. And the Bible tells us that our goodness is as of filthy rags before the Lord. On your best day, compared to the holiness of God, that's what it looks like. So those who think that their own merit before this God can get any kind of merit at all to Him, it's just not so. And I would say that it's only when we understand God that we begin to understand ourselves. Furthermore, the only way to know God is to know yourself... And the only way to know ourselves is to know God. It's reciprocal. In our day, we have to plug self into everything that we do. Let's be honest. Are y'all sleeping on me? Y'all want to take a break? Do I need to clap? Do jumping jacks? I see some of you getting ready to snooze off up in the balcony. We're going to preach on Eutychus before long out of Acts. Uh, Don't fall out of the balcony because I'm not Paul, right? And you'll be dead if you fall out. So it is. Think about that. We got self love. We got self helps running out our ears. We have self esteem. Folks, you cannot come into the presence of the Holy One with self on your lips. You just cannot do it. You can't do it. So I will tell you something that may be in contradiction to all your psychological advice you've ever been given that you paid for, perhaps, but it's okay. In the presence of holy to feel a sense of guilt. As a matter of fact, it is otherworldly healthy for you to sense guilt deep down for your sin in the presence of a holy God. And if you don't feel the weight and guilt of your sin, then you're insane. Or you're actually standing before a God that you've made up in your own imagination and not the God of the Bible. So... There's a whole book written about it. It's called Lamentations. When's the last time you lamented? You know, a a lot of mankind and, and men and women, you can be, a lot is known about you because of what you weep about. When's the last time you were actually broken over your sinfulness before God? When's the last time that, that sin that is habitually in your life, that you confess it and confess it, and God is faithful to forgive because He says He is, right? But it keeps rearing up its ugly head and you continually fall before God. When's the last time you were broken over that? When's the last time this church has been broken over sin? Are y'all listening? Folks, if Isaiah 6 is true, and this preacher here believes it from his radiator to his tailpipe, it is the Word of God, then folks, we're not looking on to something that may be uh, uh, something that could possibly happen before God. This is what happens universally before this God. He is absolutely holy, and when He comes in contact with the unholy, atonement has to be made. If there's no atonement, there's no visitation, and there's no entrance. Isaiah knew full well that he had to be purged of his sin in order to be in front of this holy God. So, That's the first thing. 
You can't know yourself if you don't know this God. It's impossible to know your own condition. Number two, or second, as Christians, our minds must be filled with the greatness of God. Folks, I'm begging you. There's nothing better for your Christian growth than to stick your mind and heart into the Bible or into a good book about God. Not a good book about you. A good book about God. That's what we need. We need this in our church. I, I look back on the seasons of growth that I could see were just a little bit bigger than incremental. Now, folks, those are far and few between, right? Because there's something to be said about walking with the Lord. You know, when you first get saved, you're running wide open. Well, actually, you're flying. And then you begin to run, and then you begin to settle down and start to walk. Well, the good thing about it is the Christian life is explained as a walk. But we can all look back on good you-catastrophes. A you-catastrophe is an upheaval for good. A catastrophe, well, that's what they got up the state with 20 inches of snow, right? But the fact is, there can be an upheaval for good in your life, and sometimes we can look back on those and measure them, and we would say, God, I thank you for that season of growth. I, I can see from that. What I'm telling you, folks, those in my life that I can look back on were not when I was focused on myself. The greatest growth seasons in my life have been times when I've been completely at awe, in awe of the God that I serve, and I've been captivated by who He is. I remember sitting in a deer stand when I was 19 years old reading the book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. But I'm telling you what, ripped out my heart and soul. You need to pick up Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read it. It'll change your life. You need to pick up A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. You say, well, you're getting back into Puritan days. I don't care what you call it. You need to pick up some good Puritan writers so you can learn about the holiness of God and not about help, helps and self-esteem. You need to pick up a book by Arthur Pink called The Sovereignty of God. Pick up a book by John Piper called The Pleasures of God. And if you really, really, really want to be jolted, pick up R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God. My wife's reading it right now. And Nathan's at home sick. And she said, I just hate it. That I can't hear the word on Isaiah 6. The holiness of God, folks, will grip you. Look, what I'm trying to tell you is, folks, don't go walking into Lifeway and buy another doggone self-help book. Don't do it! Go into Lifeway and buy you a book about God. We don't need to perpetuate any more self-centered stuff in the church. We need to perpetuate godliness and who God is. Because, folks, you're not going to change unless you know who God is. It's impossible. It's impossible to change unless you get your understanding of who God is from Him. So pick up a good book and read it about God. Expand your mind about the glory and grandeur of God. Listen, folks, He's incomprehensible. That means you will never exhaust Him no matter how long you study about Him. So if you're bored, just get started studying. Because you're going to study forever. Because you'll never exhaust him. Number three. Man, I've run out of time. Anybody ready to go home? Raise your hand. You better not. <laughs> All right. Here's the third one. Our worship, our evangelism, and our preaching must be filled with God, setting him forth as the holy king. 
Shouldn't that be true about our church? What should we say about evangelism? Well, shouldn't our evangelistic efforts, when we share Jesus with others, should it not be full of the holiness of God? Now think about that. If that is the prevailing attribute of our God, which I would argue it is, I think all the other attributes flow from the holiness of God. If that's true, then should we not put our full God on display when we give out evangelistic strategies and or we seek to win people to the Lord? My point is this. When's the last time you thought about the law when you gave Jesus to someone? When's the last time you thought about the fact that God is absolutely holy? When's the last time you said, okay, uh, God is on his throne. And he's the king of glory. And he created you. And the Bible says that there are some, there's something called the Ten Commandments. And you read off all ten of them. And you say to that person, you are accountable to the God who created you. And you've got to conform to every single one of them. Yikes. Does that put the bite into, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? You better believe it does. But folks, don't you realize that if you could live those Ten Commandments perfectly, you'd be saved. But you can't. And you won't. It's an impossibility. And what if they enumerate some of them like the rich young ruler did and say, well, I've got this one, this one, this one. And Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. We all fall on that one, don't we? When's the last time you said, when they said, well, I got five of them down. You said, well, you got five more. Now, how do you measure up? Folks, the point of that in evangelism is to teach someone that what separates us from God is the fact that he is holy and we are not. And God cannot look upon that which is holy. In other words, we have to be given the holiness from God. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful that he lived the law perfectly? And never one time sinned. And he took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary and died in my place and on my behalf. That's true salvation to understand that the king of glory is morally perfect and he is holy in all of his character. And we're under obligation to believe and obey that law, no matter if we want to or not. We're not just talking about imperfections common to all men. We're addressing individuals in their sin and their sin before a holy God. We must let them know that five out of ten just isn't good enough. Here's the next thing, our worship. Must be filled with the greatness and glory of God, not just evangelism. The goal must be in music to have really cool music to reach the young people. I think you already know what I think about that, right? (laughs) Folks, you know that intrinsically that has absolutely nothing to do with worship. To design our music that is going to be campfire songs, silly little diddlies, whatever, so that we can draw a crowd. Folks, you do realize that has absolutely nothing to do with worship. The type of song, necessarily, or just people coming together. Uh, Worship is to focus on one thing, and that is to exalt and lift up the glorious name of our God. That's why we sing songs and hymns and courses that speak in lofty terms about God. There's nothing wrong with that. We have to weed out some silly things, don't we, David? We do. We look at certain songs and we like... And I think about ones I used to sing when I was a youth. I'm like, whew, that was bad theology. But I want to remind you there's bad theology in your hymn book. Some of the songs, even in our hymn book, are not good theological songs. But here's the deal. When we engage in corporate worship, we are are engaging in something that should be governed by Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 should govern 
our songs. And, and will we have songs that cut to the ear and shout and praise God like we had today? You better believe Who is this king of glory? Right? But I would say to you that if 97% of the time worship in the Old Testament means to get low to the ground and lick the dust of the earth before the king, then I would say that 90% or better of our songs should be songs that make us stop and be still. We don't like to do that in America, do we? We're always on the go. But it's a good thing for us to stop, sit down, be still before this God. He is absolutely holy. Does that make sense? The God we gather to worship and to hear from in His Word is holy. So what kind of preacher do you need? One that helps you with the warm fuzzies? There are two types of preaching going on in the world today. One is preachers who preach human needs and do everything they can to make you feel good. Or there are preachers who preach the Word of God and exalt God and exalt Jesus and we let God and Jesus deal with your needs. Right? Because the fact of the matter is uh, there's so little of Christ in much preaching today that it could pass for sermons that could be delivered at social club gatherings. If what this preacher preaches could be accepted in the Mormon church or the Jewish church or uh, the Catholic church for that matter or social clubs, then I'm not a preacher. You're not a Christian preacher if you can be accepted everywhere you go. You just can't be. You won't be. So Piper calls it expository exaltation. Exalting in the Word of God. Preaching what this Bible, this text says to us. Much preaching today exalts man and his need. And again, preaching is about exalting God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God will meet your needs if I am preaching the glory and majesty of God. God will meet your needs. It is in preaching the glory and majesty of God that you actually come to see your true need for Jesus Christ and the remedy for your life. Augustus, top lady, wrote a song called... Rock of ages, cleft for me. Folks, do y'all know how much you need Jesus? When you look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, all oh, the joy that should fill our souls to read verses 6 and 7. That God actually did something to atone for our sins. And obviously, this is looking forward to the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen to Top Lady's second verse. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Sing it simply to Thy cross I cling. What are you clinging to for redemption today? Self? Self-help? Are you clinging to the cross of Calvary? That is the salvation for the world. It's the word of the cross that saves. It's the word of what happened on the cross that saves. Father, we just stand in awe. And Lord, uh, I know I get worked up, Father. I know it. I know that, uh, Lord, I'm feeble. There's, there's no way that I could re reveal in a sermon the passion that I feel for a God who would love me like you love me.
in light of all of your holiness. Lord, uh, truly, uh, in this manner you loved, that you gave us Jesus. Father, all of us should read verses 6 and 7 and just fall before you tonight, today, and say, Lord God, thank you for the hot, live coal from the altar that touched our lips and atoned us. And we know what it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary that forgives us of our sin. Lord, may people today, especially those who are lost, may they for the first time see you in all of your holiness. Lord, just a glimpse so that they see their own condition before you and run to Jesus. Run to the cross for salvation. For Christians, Lord, God help us not to be petty. Help us not to be self-oriented. In whatever manner that may be, God help us put our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.